We're not going to shift and we're going to look at the scriptures together. Uh, We like to spend a portion of every week that we gather looking at the scriptures together, asking God to teach us from his words. We're going to open up Romans chapter 8 today. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find it in page, I think it's 944, 945, and the black Bibles that you'll see under the chairs. We believe that God speaks to us through the Bible, that it speaks with the authority and the relevance of Jesus. And so we come to the scriptures with eager anticipation, excited to see what he has for us this week. We're calling it this week, It's Worth It. It's Worth It. Last week, you may remember where he ended in Romans eight sixteen. He talked about how we're sons of God and we'll inherit this glory provided we suffer with him. And so the question then naturally is, well, well, do I want that, right? Do I want to be a son of God if being a son of God involves sweating in the family business, involves suffering? That's oftentimes much worse than sweating, right? The, the suffering can be intense that God calls us to in this life. Is it worth it to be a son of God? Is it worth it to follow him knowing that we're going to suffer? We're going to go through hard stuff. That's a big question in our mind. And of course, I've given away the answer. Yes, it's worth it. Okay, that's my title today. I'm going to try to spend the next few minutes proving that to you. The big illustration that Paul uses in this text is childbirth, right? And I know it's kind of dangerous for man to talk about childbirth, but I've at least witnessed childbirth a few times, uh, three of my own children being born. And I remember before the first birth, I remember hearing from, from godly, well-meaning Christian women, again, well-meaning, just how horrific childbirth can be, right? I remember them enjoying telling war stories about just the gruesomeness and the awfulness, and I see you ladies laughing. Yeah, you know what, you know what that's like. And so I kind of went into this thinking, what, what am I doing to my poor wife, right? Like, I can't believe we're going to do this because I heard it is so horrific, and kind of being worried that maybe it wasn't worth it. Now, I had a little relief when we went to the childbirth classes because it, it's kind of interesting as a man, you know, I didn't understand all the biology of it, and we took these childbirth classes, and I was like, oh, the human body is made for this. Okay, I didn't, I didn't quite realize it, it actually could work. You know, it just sounds so horrible. Like, okay, this could work. This might actually happen. And then, then it actually started to happen, right? Uh, my wife's water broke when we were at a wedding. I remember coming to the wedding reception, and she has this look on her face, and all these people are staring at me like, here he comes, here he comes, you know? And I just walked in taking pictures. I was like a a groomsman, you know, and I, I come into the reception and my wife is like, my water broke, we got to go to the hospital. And everybody's like, it's time, it's time, you know, so we're all excited. We go to the hospital, get checked. He's like, yeah, your water broke. Uh, we need to start this thing. They put her on Pitocin. You know what Pitocin is? It induces labor. It's a drug that makes you start laboring when your body hasn't started laboring yet. And apparently she reacted really strongly to it. So she had just insane labor, um, labored, 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 and uh, 18 hours later, after some more pushing, the doctor said, well, the baby's face is turned the wrong way. This isn't happening. And, oh, and the baby's heart rate is elevated. Oh, and you have a fever. You know, there, there's some things going wrong. It's not turning out how we were told it would turn out in the childbirth classes. My wife's gone through in, incredible, incredible pain. So they decide at that point to do a C-section, basically cut the baby out. It worked. The baby arrived. And you know what happened, right? If you've had a child or you've heard these stories of having children, you know what happened is my wife quickly forgot the suffering and the pain once the baby was here. Once the baby was here, she quickly forgot all the suffering. And we said it was worth it. It was worth it. And, and what Paul is saying is the Christian life is like that. 
yes, it's going to be painful. God is calling you to carry a cross. God is calling you to some significant suffering with him in this world as you lay your life down to serve others and to love others. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Let's look at the text and hear how he describes it in Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 17 to kind of pick up where he ended last week. Well, 16 and 17. So starting in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So there's the proposition. Part of being a child of God is suffering like Jesus, with Jesus. And that leads us to glory. So the question is, is it worth it? And he says now in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What he's saying is that it can't even stack up on the scales. The glory so far outweighs the price of the suffering. It's not even worth comparing. Verse 19, he goes on. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let me pray. Ask God to teach us this morning. uh, Make this real for us. God, we ask uh, with groaning. We pray with your spirit groaning and interceding for us. We, We groan and cry out to you that you would make this real, that you would show us that it's worth it, that you're worth it that your spirit would meet us here. God, I know there are circumstances in this room right now that people are going through that, that I can't even begin to imagine that I haven't walked through, but we all have suffered as human beings. We all can relate to each other and to you as the God who joined in our suffering. So we pray that you would help us to see that our suffering for your sake is worth it, and that you would do something beautiful and glorious and gracious through our suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A key definition I want to clarify up front before we kind of go verse by verse is that often Christians slip into this kind of uh, poverty gospel where we want to pursue suffering as if suffering is a good in and of itself. And I just want to clarify that we don't believe that suffering is a good in and of itself. We believe that God is so good that he can do good things through our suffering. And so I think that clarification needs to be made. If, If you're Uh, Like me, sometimes I have this thing of like, well, God says he can do good things. Well, let me just chase after that, right? Let me dive into that. I don't think we're called to pursue suffering. The world has plenty of suffering of its own that will be thrown at us. We're to pursue Christ. As we pursue Christ, as we follow him, we're going to suffer like him. Suffering is going going to happen. We live in a world, in a a, uh, epoch, a a time, a season. I'm trying to think of the right word for that. A season of suffering, right? Right? We're not to the end yet where Jesus makes all things right. That's what we're looking forward to. So we're going through suffering, and Jesus meets us in our suffering. And Jesus even uses our suffering for the good to bless others in the same way that he works through the sufferings of Christ. So there's a parallel, parallelism there. 
Suffering's not good, but God is good through our suffering. The first thing that I want us to see as we kind of march through in order, what Paul is showing us here is that we should see the epic. We want to see the epic of what God is doing. This is something big. It's bigger than us, and it is something glorious. Uh, We love to go see big movies. We love to go see big firework shows. Uh, We love to see beautiful things in nature like the Grand Canyon or going to the Rocky Mountains. And what Paul is saying is that this is something like that. The suffering, the pain, and the difficulty that we're going through in life is this epic story that God is telling. And we should see what all of creation is doing. All of creation is stretching its neck out to see the epic of what God is accomplishing. It's literally stretching its neck out is the word he uses here. I grabbed a picture of someone uh, in a crowd trying to see someone famous. I don't even know who the famous person is, right? But they're holding up a selfie stick to reach their camera over the crowd to take a picture of the famous person that they can't stretch far enough to see themselves. And the text is saying all of creation is stretching to see what God is doing in making sons for himself. And so that, that's the scene as Paul sets it up here. So again in verse 18, the big idea of this epic is that he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he sets the stage. Yes, suffering is terrible, but the glory that's coming is going to be so much bigger, so much better, that it's not even worth comparing. It is so incredible. It's so good. God is so big. God is so beautiful. What he's doing, it's not even worth comparing to what we're going through now. Does that mean what we're going through now is great, enjoyable, and wonderful? No, it's, it's still suffering. But it's not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. And then he goes on with this language of stretching for the creation waits with eager longing. That phrase in Greek is literally stretching out the neck to see. Right? So they translate it eager longing because I guess they thought stretching your neck out would be too weird. People wouldn't understand it. But, but literally, that's what it says in the Greek. Creation is, is trying to see on, on tiptoes to see what God is doing in the sons of God. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So this childbirth, this suffering that we're going through, all of creation is joining with us. I'm talking about the rocks and the trees and uh, the howling coyotes and the the creaking rocks. You ever been into Enchanted Rock at night? Um, The stories are that they called it Enchanted because the rocks creak, right? This is like moaning and aching of the world itself. We have geysers and tornadoes and volcanoes. Our trip uh, group just got back from... Guatemala, my daughter says she got to see a, a volcano. I was like, wait, what? And you survived. That, that worked, right? But they saw a volcano e- erupting. Apparently, it wasn't a big enough eruption to kill everyone. But there's this, there's this aching, right, that's, that's happening in the world. It's just, it's creaking, it's groaning, it's, it's aching. And all of this, it says, Paul is saying, it's, it's creation longing to see the completion of what it's been, what it's been waiting for. So verse 19 is the, is the stretching the neck, the eager longings, the stretching the neck to see the revealing of the sons of God. And so the logic here is that when the sons of God are revealed, 
Uh, that's when God sums up everything, ties up all the bows, right? That's the big conclusion of the story when everything is made right, when he wipes away every tear from our eye and he takes away every pain. And so that's that glory that we're looking forward to. And the world is bound to futility, corruption, decay. So the world we live in, that's why I say logically, all of you suffer. You can have the perfect life, so to speak, and if you live in this world, you live a world in a world of suffering. And so on the one hand, we want to say, man, my suffering can't be compared to, to Christians in the Middle East getting tortured by ISIS. Yes, that's a good, healthy, sobering thought. Yes, but you still suffer. I, I know that middle-class people in America and the richest country in the world still suffer because we live in a world of suffering. We still live in a world of relational brokenness. We still live in a world of disease. Like with all of our medical health care, all this great technology we have, we're still dying and our bodies are still falling apart. So we're a part of this creation that is in bondage to decay and corruption. And that's what Paul is describing. And all of creation along with us is longing, stretching to see this epic finale that God is creating, recreating, and revealing the sons of God. So when the sons of God are revealed, right, right now, you can't really tell who the sons of God are. If you follow someone around, you might see the fruit of the Spirit in someone's life. You might see love and joy and peace and patience. And you might say, okay, I th- I'm suspicious that that's a son of God. But in the end, there will be this glorious revealing parallel to Jesus appearing in his resurrected, resurrected body. There will be this revealing of the sons and the daughters of God revealed for who they really, they really are and all their glory and all their greatness. A great essay by C.S. Lewis is called The Weight of Glory. The Weight of Glory. I've told you before, if you've been at this church very long, the word glory in Hebrew literally means weight. So there are stories in the Old Testament of guys who stole from God's temple, priests, Eli specifically, I think was his name, uh, but he stole from God's temple, he would eat the extra food, and he became very glorious because he was eating what he shouldn't have been eating, right? Right? So if you eat too much, you're collecting glory for yourself. The Old Testament view is, well, God is really the glorious one. God is really the heavy one. Humans can only, we can only take so much glory before it kills us. But God is glorious in a, in a other kind of sense, right? He is the truly weighty one. So when we take that glory upon ourselves, it, it creates disease, it kills us, it destroys our body, and that's what happened with Eli. It said he fell over, broke his neck because he was glorious. And it's the backstory of him stealing glory. And that's a whole great, beautiful picture, or beautiful story you should read. But C.S. Lewis takes up that idea and calls it the weight of glory in this essay. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis talking about the gloriousness that is to be revealed in the sons of God. And Lewis takes it even farther and talks about kind of the um, epic grotesqueness of those that rebel against God. So the idea is we're immortal, and we're all either headed for an immortal love of God, glorious sons of God, or we're headed for an immortal twisting in upon ourselves into what he describes as being, becoming monsters. Lewis says it this way, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. 
It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. I just clarify his language. When he says gods and goddesses, he's not saying we are to be worshipped, but he's using it in the way the Bible often does, that there are, is one true God who is really God, and then there are little gods who are glorious creatures. And he's saying we're all headed for that kind of glory. We're all either going to be splendorous, beautiful, amazing, glorified lovers of Jesus, worshiping him forever, or we're going to be horrible nightmares turned in upon ourselves who get everything that we long for, which is a rejection of God and a love of self. So he's saying we're all immortal and we're headed for this incredible future. And the question is, do we see that, that epic story that we're involved in? So why has creation been subjected to futility? Or maybe the question I I really mean to ask is how? Verse 20, look at that again. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is he talking about? I think it's easiest to just read Genesis 3. Read Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we have the story of Adam and Eve in the garden saying, God, we'd, we'd rather have your stuff and not have you, and so they choose to listen to the serpent and take the stuff and reject a relationship with God. And that kind of casts everything into decay, bondage, corruption, just as Paul's describing here. So there's a curse that's declared. God says, now there's, now there's going to be pain in your fruitfulness, pain in producing children, pain in producing crops in this world. Both things we're still called to, right? Work in itself is not a curse, just to clarify Having children is not a curse, but the process has been cursed. So before sin came into the world, we were called to have children, build cities, work, make culture, and those are good things we're called to. So work is a beautiful thing God has made us for. Having children is a beautiful thing God's made us for. Building families, building culture, building cities, we're supposed to do that. It's part of the cultural mandate we see in Genesis chapter 2. What happened is because of our rebellion against God, the whole thing that we're called to is now broken and painful, and hard, and as Paul says here, subjected to futility. Not because the process or creation wanted to be, because it's a curse that God laid on it because of our sin. And so the biblical worldview is, we made it this way. And so I want to ask you, first of all, by way of application, when you look at what's broken in the world, do you say, it's those people? It's the people of this color, or it's the people of this class, or it's the people of this nation, or it's the people of this religion? Or do you recognize, no, it was me and and Father Adam and Mother Eve. It's me. My sin and their sin is what's broken the world. Do you recognize with a biblical worldview that you are what is wrong with the world? I am what's wrong with the world, my own sinfulness. And the only cure for that is a God who would take our sin upon himself on the cross and give us his righteousness in Jesus. And so Paul is unpacking that here, saying the world was bound to this curse because of our sin and longing and waiting for the little promise that was made in Genesis 3.15, where God said to Eve, 
someday you're going to have a son that's going to defeat evil. It's going to defeat the serpent. The dragon will be crushed by a son of yours someday. So there's this longing for that to happen. That has happened already. This is the already, not yet. It's happened already in that Jesus crushed the serpent on the cross. And it's happened not yet and that God is in this epic time, in this eon that we live, in this season that we live in, God is giving time for more people to understand, to taste, and see what Jesus has done for them on the cross, to receive that forgiveness, to trust in Jesus, to begin following, following him. And so that's the world we live in now, a world that is still in suffering and death, even though Jesus made the final victory over death and sin on the cross. God's giving more time for more people to come to trust in that and to come to follow him. And there's a day we look forward to where it'll all be wrapped up, all be tied up in a bow, all things will be made right. And we will be revealed as the sons of God and daughters of God that we are. So that's what creation is longing for. That's what we're longing for. So first of all, are you, are you excited about what God is doing? Do you see the big story of scripture? Do you recognize the epic story that God is telling? How already you have forgiveness of sin and the down payment of the Holy Spirit that's been given to you? But not yet are you everything as glorious as you will be. God is still working that out in our lives. He's still calling you to love well and to serve others and to join in Jesus' suffering as you finish the story. Are you playing the part that God has called you to play? That is to follow Jesus and to give yourself as as a seed gives itself to die in the ground in the hope of seeing fruit come up. Pray that God would show you the part that he wants you to play in this world. As I said, we shouldn't pursue suffering, but we should recognize that part of uh, living in this world is to suffer and that God can use our suffering for his good and for his glory. Do, do you see that epic? Say, God, help, help me to see, help me to obey what's right in front of me, help me to follow uh, the lines that you've laid out for me. The next thing I want us to see in verse 23 and to zero in on this is that we should hunger for more. We should hunger for more so we have begun to see the already of our salvation, the already of what Jesus has done by crushing the serpent on the cross. And we should long for the more of the finishing of the story, right? Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so we have a key word here, first fruits. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the beginning, and there's much more to come, right? First fruits in an agricultural world, when you first start having crops come up, you'd have a big party and celebrate. God brought crops up again. Let's have a party. Let's eat some of the fruit. But that's just the beginning of a season of more fruitfulness. And so we as followers of Jesus, as those that belong to him, have the first fruits of what God is doing in the world because he's given us the spirit. Go back and read Ephesians chapter one that talks about how the spirit is this seal, this deposit that he gives to us to make sure that we know that we're gonna make it and that there's more to come. So are you hungering for that more? Do you recognize the spirit's work in your life? Are you hungering for him to do more in your life? Are you desiring to see more? You've tasted the down payment, you've enjoyed the first fruits, and are you hungering for more? I grabbed a picture here. This is one of those food expos, the uh, big festival. They have those around here sometimes. 
somebody tasting chicken wings. Restaurants come out to these food expos, and they give away samples. Why do they give away samples? Do you know? What's that about? How can a restaurant make money by giving stuff away? Any of you know? Well, because once you've tasted it, then you want more, right? And and that's exactly what God is relying on in, in this idea of the first fruits being given to us. Once you've tasted, once you've been given that sample, I heard someone talk about the other day they were touring a chocolate factory, um, and I think some of the folks in Guatemala got to see a chocolate factory down there. Well, oftentimes at a chocolate factory, they'll give you a little taste, right? And then you tour, and you've just got that taste going in your mouth, and you're smelling it, and you're, you're seeing it. And then at the end, there's a bunch more stuff you can buy, right? Because they know that that taste is going to make you, you want more. That's the same kind of thing that he's saying here. Are you, are you hungering for more? You've been given the down payment of the Holy Spirit. Are you hungering for more? Do you, do you desire to see the Spirit work in your life? Do you desire to see God defeat sin in your life by the Spirit, as we talked about last week? Do you desire to see yourself trust God in new ways? Lay your life down in new ways, serving others for the gospel in new ways, giving of yourself and your resources and your time and your energy? Are, are you eager to see God do more in your life? He's, he's given you the first fruits, and he wants to do something glorious. And he describes this process, this hungering process, as groaning, as groaning. There's, there's beautiful cross-references in Second Corinthians as well, but I don't really want to take time to go over there. I just want to look at this one more time here. He says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So are you longing to see God fix all of you so there's no more temptation to sin, so that you are gloriously and completely his? And are you groaning in this world for that? Or are you just groaning for more of this world? It's a question to ask yourself. Are you spiritually groaning that God would give you more of himself? Or are you just groaning for the next worldly situation here and now? Are you just groaning that God would give you more food, more drink, more partners, more relationships, more pleasure here and now? Are you groaning and longing for him to permanently fix you and make you whole? The redemption of your bodies. There's also a question sometimes that people ask here with verse 23. He says, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What does that mean? Because last week I said we were adopted already, right? Do you remember that? And so conceptually, everything that we have in Christ, theologians say, is already and not yet, right? I'm already saved. And that means already Jesus has forgiven me for my sins. I have a confidence that I am in Jesus' hand and nothing can snatch me out of his hand. But I'm still living in a world of suffering and pain and death. You know, when I die and I get to see him face to face in the renewal of all things, that future I'm looking forward to, that, that's going to be salvation in a, in a whole other sense than the already saved that I am now, right? And adoption is the same way. You're already adopted. You already belong to him. You're already his child. He's made that clear if you read the whole chapter. But there's still this longing for the completion of what he's just started in your life. We're still in pain. We're still suffering. We're still longing for him to, to fix everything that's broken in the world. So first of all, do you recognize that God is not done with you yet? Are you tasting now 
the forgiveness of sin, the freedom that we have, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and are you hungering for more? Complete freedom from sin, the renewal of all things, everything that God is doing in this world. So recognize, first of all, that God's not done with you yet, and hunger for more. What does it look like to hunger for more? I think uh, when we talk about traditionally the disciplines of the Christian faith, things like uh, praying to God and, and calling on Him, whether that be asking Him for changes in your life or other people's lives, but also just praying for more of His presence in your life, that activity of prayer is a longing for more, a hungering for more of God and more of His, uh, to grab language from the Lord's Prayer, more of His kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Are you praying those kinds of prayer? God, will you make yourself known in this world? Will you more and more and more break in to my reality and show yourself great? Overpower my desires, God, and give me more of your desires. Make yourself bigger and more glorious in my life. Do you hunger for more prayer, uh, Bible reading? That's why we encourage you to read the scriptures so that your mind can be renewed in what God says is true about reality rather than what you say is true or what your friend says is true? What does God say about this epic story we're a part of? We should hunger for more of him and more of what he has to say. The last thing that we see is that we should dig in. We, we should dig into the suffering here and now. One of the, the phrases that's often used in Christianity is hope, right? Hope in Hebrews is described as a, a surety of what's to come. And so there is a solidness of hope. And then in this passage, Paul's also saying, so in Hebrews it's saying hope is not just wishing, right? It's not just I wish, I wonder, maybe. That's not hope. Christian hope is it's happening because Jesus has promised it and taken care of. He's won the victory on the cross. I can count on it. But then Paul adds this other element in this passage where he says, but if you have it already, if it's finished, that's not really hope. That's having it. So Paul's clarifying there's still this process part to hope, right? So we've got the objective and the subjective. Hebrews is hitting the objective. It's done. That's why you can hope in it, right? That's why you can make that an anchor because it's done and you can count on God. But then Paul's talking about the subjective side of, well, it's not finished yet, so I am waiting. There's a waiting that's happening. There's a, a patience, a longing, and enduring that's going on because I don't have it yet. If you have it, then you're, you're done with hope. Now you're just enjoying it, right? Verse 24. In this hope, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The most common Greek word for, for patience is makrothumia, which in Greek literally means long-suffering. Um, so actually, one place where I prefer the King James. So long-suffering is the literal translation of uh, patience. Here, it's a different word that is usually translated in English, endurance or steadfastness, and it's hupomeno, and it's a word y'all know I love to talk about because the only sport I ever played was football, and I'm tall and skinny, so this had to be drilled into my head by my coaches, and they would say, get low, get low, dig in, let your cleats get into the ground. And that's the word here, hupomeno. He's saying, dig into the ground, hupomeno. It's taking uh, under and abide, and it's a compound word, and it's like abide under, it's dig in. The word would be used for Roman soldiers who would be wearing their cleats and dig in in battle. And the same thing happens in sports on grassy fields where you're wearing cleats and you have to dig in with your cleats to take a strong position. If you run track, you, you dig in and you get blocks, right, to, to bring the ground's strength in 
to your strength and to merge those as one. And so what he's saying is, rather than running away from the circumstances, dig in to the Lord in those circumstances. You're not, you're not digging into the circumstances themselves. You're just digging in in endurance and patience and hope that God is accomplishing something, again, that's worth it, that far outweighs the suffering that you're going through. Trust that God is up to bigger things. Dig into him in that moment. One of my favorite quotes from Oswald Chambers, it's a a guy that wrote devotionals. Actually, this was lectures he made at a Bible college, and then his wife, after he died, made it into a devotional. Um, So if you've you've ever read Oswald Chambers' book, My Utmost for His Highest, it can be a little hard to follow because it's just little snippets from Bible college lectures, right? Um, But one of my favorite uh, entries is April 29th, and it's called Gracious Uncertainty. And Oswald says this, Jesus said, unless you become as little children, in Matthew, unless you become as little children, Oswald goes on and says, the spiritual life is the life of a child. We are not uncertain of God, just uncertain of what he is going to do next. So I'm calling you to dig in to God himself. You're you're digging in into a certainty in the person of Christ, into who God is, that you can rely on him. So like a child, when everything is going wrong, if your world falls apart, if you're lost, if you're sick, you, you want mommy and daddy, right? You just, you dig into those that you love, even though they may not fix it, but at least you can be with them and they'll carry you through that pain. And so he's calling us again to dig in, the word in the text is patience or endurance, and cling to that hope, and the hope is, is really Jesus himself. And once you have him, see him face to face, Paul says, okay, you're no, you're no longer hoping anymore, then you're with him, right? And so the time we're in now, we're, we're digging in, in certainty, trusting him. This can happen in uh, any difficult circumstance, right? I'll just grab a couple that I see day to day in our lives. One is difficult work circumstances. Our work takes up most of our life, Right? And although I think most soldiers, you know, are living the dream and love their job, sometimes, sometimes you might find yourself in difficult work circumstances, right? Teachers, right? A lot of people in this community are teachers as well. Teachers, usually it's the best job in the world, but sometimes it can be a hard job, right? Sometimes in your work, it can feel futile. It can feel dissatisfying. It can feel like you're bound to corruption. Use the kind of language from this text. So I would say, dig in into your certainty in Christ himself and say, God, I know that you're the kind of God that can use suffering to accomplish glorious things. And I'm going to dig into you as I cast my body like a seed into the ground, trusting that as I burn up this life, you're going to use it for good because I'm offering it to you as a gift. The language in Romans 12 is we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Dig into him. Trust that he's going to use you. Another difficult circumstance, a lot of us find ourselves in a relational circumstances, right? You might, have, um, you might have difficult circumstances with friends, uh, with your family, with your kids, uh, with your parents, with your spouse, and it can just be painful. And you can feel like the purpose of this relationship is for me to have joy, and I don't have any joy, so I need to eject and say, no, dig in, that God can take you through suffering in relationships And he can use you to sow seeds of grace and forgiveness and kindness into those relationships. He can use you in those difficult circumstances. 
dig into him and give yourself to him in that process. Say, God, I don't understand what you're doing in this relationship, but I'm going to trust you, be patient. I'm going to hope in you and not just the circumstances. I'm going to dig into you, and I, and I prayerfully am asking you and trusting you to do something glorious through this terrible circumstance. Pray that he would use you. As we wrap up, I want to just, again, think about that others, oh, the digging in. Linebacker stance. I want to remind you again what he said, that it's worth it, right? The very beginning, he says, I consider the, the suffering of the present time is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. I want to remind you of that again. The big image he uses is childbirth. And I just want to recognize, I know some of you um, maybe have had those circumstances where you gave it your all, you suffered, you did the difficult thing, the vision was even accomplished, and in the end, you're like, I still don't know if it was worth it. I just want to acknowledge that sometimes the analogy fails. Sometimes you can say, yeah, I'm never doing that again. That was not worth it. That was too much pain. And I just want to say, yeah, sometimes the analogies break down. I've had those experiences too. I I did things, paid the price, I did difficult things. The fruit that came in wasn't worth the pain of what I gave. And I just said, yeah, I'm not doing that again. And sometimes those are the lessons we learn in this life. But the lesson that Paul is telling us here in Romans 8 It's a different story. He's saying, your life, as offered to Jesus, as a son and a daughter of God, it will always be worth it. Again, nothing can compare. Nothing can compare. The suffering that you go through now doesn't even measure up to the glory that will be revealed in us, through us, to us, in Christ. Let me pray for us. We'll respond together in worship. God, thanks for... Thanks for giving us some hope this morning. And again, we pray that your Holy Spirit would make it real because we can hear these things and we can see it in the scripture and we can say amen and we can love what you're doing. And then we go back into battle in our daily life and we just feel ready to give up. And so we pray that just as you said, your Holy Spirit would would be that down payment, that deposit that would make this actionable in our lives that we would be a people that for the praise of your glory would depend on you, honor you, love you. Thank you for giving your life for us. Help us to give our life in return. We pray in Jesus' name.